Well, good morning. Did you get your extra hour of sleep this morning? Maybe we should do this every week. Just add an hour, add an hour. No, I don't think so. Well, I hope you are rested, uh, refreshed, and ready to open God's Word to hear from Him on this Lord's Day. Would you turn to John chapter 14? John 14. We want to answer the question, what is the next event on God's prophetic timetable? What is the next event on God's prophetic timetable? If you were looking at God's calendar of events, I'm guessing there's an app for that. What should happen next? Pastor Dave is preaching through what we would call Christ's first advent, which means arrival or uh, appearing, coming into place, his incarnation, as told in the Gospel of John. And my aim My aim is not to look at the past regarding Christ's ministry on the earth 2,000 years ago and his his, uh, glorious arrival as God in human flesh. But what I want to do today is to kind of hone in on the future promise that he will return again. Jesus will return again. And it is a promise. We are so close to the time of the return of Christ when Jesus returns. I believe that we are that close. It could happen at any moment. And quite obviously, we have never been this close to his return in all of human history, but we are, we are standing literally on the very precipice of eternity. And just imagine for a moment how special it would be if Jesus were to return right now. I mean, right now. Here, Bibles are open. We're together for worship, to ascribe worth to him. And like that, we're in the air to meet him. And we would be face to face with him. We would be headed home. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, let's dive right in. Look at uh, John 14, verses 1 through 3. Our key text will be in 1 Thessalonians, but I have something very important to share with you here in John 14. It begins, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, here it is. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You might want to write that last part down in your bulletins or underline it in your Bible if you haven't. I preached on this passage in John 14 a little over two years ago, but let me remind you of what we have in our possession here. Again, it's a promise. It's a promise. And and of all the promises that Jesus gives in the Bible, I would think this one provides the greatest comfort. This is not speaking of his second coming and kingdom reign upon the earth. This is a rapture reference in that Jesus is promising that there will be a day when he will take believers home to heaven, not to earth. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where is he right now? Where did he ascend to? Heaven, right? Heaven. The second coming is Jesus' arrival to planet earth, so it can't be a reference to that. No, he doesn't come to earth. We go to heaven. And so what John 14 is referring to is a taking. It's a a rapture of the church to heaven. We're going to the Father's house 
to the place he's been preparing for us. And that is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. Now, the New Testament on three occasions gives us these details. The event is told here in John 14, in 1 Corinthians 15, that Ben uh, read for us earlier, and in our key text for this morning in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you'd make your way there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The problem is not just with the what, you know, what is the next event, but sometimes it's also with the when. When will the rapture occur? When will it happen? Some of you may remember a man named Harold Camping. Remember Harold Camping? Harold Camping was the owner of the family radio network. I believe he died nine, ten years ago. And Camping had made a claim to many of his listeners. He said, the church age is over. You can stop going to church. You need to leave your churches and look to family radio to be the main vehicle through uh, which the gospel is preached to the whole which is also where he wanted all their money sent to, no surprise there. And he said he had figured out with 100% certainty when the Lord was returning, when the rapture would occur. Do you remember this? Some of you may remember this big billboard campaign across the country stating the date. And the date, he said, was May 21st, 2011. May 21st, 2011. And my favorite memory of all this stupidity, really, was that Phil Johnson, if you know who Phil Johnson is, he had publicly challenged camping to put his money where his mouth is, indeed the ownership and full control of his radio network to him, effective at 12.01 a.m. on May 22nd, 2011. That was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And obviously, camping did not do that. And camping is not the first, nor will he be the last in our lifetime of men or, or women attempting to predict the return of Christ. And it, it really shouldn't be that difficult for us to discern, right? What I mean is we have Matthew twenty four thirty six. It's that easy. Matthew twenty four thirty six, which tells us that the Lord said, no one knows the day nor the hour. Matthew twenty four thirty six. enough said. So I don't want to talk with you this morning about nonsensical uh, predictions of when Jesus will return, We only know that he is returning. Scripture tells us to lock in on that. The fact that Jesus will return. Hopefully you've made your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to read a couple verses here. uh, Verses 13 to 18 in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It begins, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. Great statement that's saying, hey, I'm going to teach you something here about those who are asleep, it's talking about those who are dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always, always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I want to give you uh, five adverbs if you're taking notes this morning. You remember adverbs, right? 
Uh, they bring clarity, hopefully, to a verb. They modify a verb. And the verb really here is returns, when Jesus returns. And I, I want us to meditate on these five words that I'm going to give you to, to help us stay encouraged in the uh, difficulties of our lives. He will return. And to have that hope of his return and the, the joy of the Lord as, as your strength. And the first one here is the word surely. Not the name surely, the word surely, S-U-R-E-L-Y. He will return surely. This is a fact. It's, it's not fantasy. It's not some kind of comic book theology. This is the certainty of Christian hope. It's one of the greatest comforts we can have when our loved ones in Christ are, are taken away from us in death. And it's found right here. Look again at these two verses, verses 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, the, the Thessalonian believers, they knew the reality of Jesus' return. If you just go a couple pages back here to chapter 1, you look at chapter 1, in verse 3, what they had been taught, they were marked by a work of faith, it says, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They, they were hoping to see Christ, to be reunited with him. And down in verse 9, Paul writes of their testimony, a wonderful example, because he says, you turn to God from idols to, to serve a, a living and true God. And here it is in verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. They were waiting for Jesus when he returns. To rescue a body of believers from a time of tribulation. A wrath to come. And that is why, this is why Paul makes a reference to sleep and, and the possibility of them being uninformed. The church at Thessalonica, they were grieving. They, they had uh, lost a number of loved ones and knew the certainty of this truth. Surely, Jesus will come again. But there arose among them this concern that perhaps those who had already died would miss the event. Again, this is the reference to those who are asleep. Sleep here is simply a reference to the body when it has died. And you know, that word is never ever used in the New Testament to refer to the soul of a person who has died. The body of Lazarus is said to be asleep in the grave in John 11. The body of Stephen fell asleep, Acts 7. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about a husband who dies, his body sleeps. And 2 Peter 3 talks of the previous saints who all fell asleep. Asleep. For the believer in Christ, death simply means that your body is not in its final resting place. It's asleep. By the way, uh, you know that this is where we get the word cemetery. It was Christians who came up with that word from the same Greek word. It means sleeping grounds. It's interesting, sleeping grounds. And for the believer, this is true because the soul never sleeps. Upon death, it departs to be from the body to be with the Lord. And the body sleeps, but the soul, the soul does not. So when the rich man died in that Luke 16, uh, 19 parable, he immediately was in torment. When Lazarus the beggar died, he immediately was in the presence of 
uh, Abraham. When the thief on the cross puts his trust in the Savior hanging beside him, Jesus said, today, he didn't say, oh, there's going to be quite some time here. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And that is why Paul says in Philippians 1.23, it is far better to depart and be with Christ. Or he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, and you know this, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Present with the Lord. There's no purgatory. No temporary visit to heaven only to return to your body and write a book about the experience and perhaps get a movie deal as well. All humor aside, this is why a funeral of a person who dies without God, without Christ, is so terribly difficult. And it's been said that funerals are for the living, they're not for the dead, and I guess that would be true. What can be said about what can be said about the one who has rejected Christ and died? I mean, there's, there's no hope. There's nothing to say that's going to bring comfort to their loved ones. I mean, sure, you can, and rightly so, you can reach back and, and share experiences and memories in the life of that person and the common grace that you had together. But in the end, the reality is that person is suffering in hell. So Paul, he's being pastoral here much like being at a funeral of a loved one in Christ. He says, don't don't grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The ungodly have no hope, so I don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope. I don't want you to think like they think because we have the certainty of Christian hope. And he shares with them why this is so certain. We're still in number one here, surely. Look at verse 14 one more time. Christian hope is as certain as the central doctrines of Christ's death and resurrection. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Do you believe that the sinless son of God died on the cross for our sins as our substitute? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead, signifying victory and from God a receipt of of payment? Then surely you can be certain that he will return for you. For you. Paul is making it crystal clear for us in only point number one that look, you, you really have no hope and no right to speak of his return if you have not spent enough time at the cross, if you know what I mean. That's because all these events, they're tied together. They're tied together. Another adverb to help us with this passage, when Jesus returns, he will return, number two here, suddenly. Suddenly. The timing of this event will happen unexpectedly. All of a sudden, suddenly, it's going to happen. Ben read for us a parallel text this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. Do you remember these words found in verse 52? Listen to how quickly this event will take place. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. There's not going to be any time to get ready. No time to say, oh, I should have believed in Christ, his cross and resurrection. No time to repent. No time to to reconcile, reset, rebuild, rework, rethink, retry. No. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus will return and a great change is going to take place. How fast are we really talking about here? The word moment 
It originates from a word which is expressed in our English literally as an atom, A-T-O-M. An atom is so small that it's indivisible. The idea is that it simply, time simply can't be sliced any thinner, that quick. The Lord will arrive on the scene in the smallest amount of time in the sky above. And it adds, in the twinkling of an eye, faster than a blink. That's how suddenly it will occur. It will take place so suddenly. And what's important for us is, look, there, there will be no hurricane-like warning here. No forecast, no heads up. It's just going to happen. Check out chapter 5, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians still, 5, verse 2. Jesus is going to return when we least expect it. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord here refers to the time known as the Great Tribulation. This is when all hell is going to literally break loose here upon the earth. And it will come, verse 3, when people are saying peace and safety. And then destruction will come upon them suddenly. But the beginning of all this is the appearance of Jesus for his church. It will be unannounced. It will be unexpected. We have all grown used to this phrase here, like a thief in the night. But let's give it some further thought for a moment, like a thief in the night. Because there's no announcement by the thief that he's coming, right? He's not going to signal the time of his coming. He's waiting until the house is asleep. It's the best time to enter. As everyone's in an unconscious state. And the world, the world will be asleep. The world's going to be focused on the affairs of the day. Sound familiar? American politics, China, Russia, and their strategies. What a supposed artist's next move might be. I won't say his name. I don't care. Sports to the extreme. And the point here is that the world will give no thought to eternity. And sadly, some Christians will not be prepared either. I I have time next week, next month, yeah, 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 next year. And that is when he returns, when he enters the house like a thief in the night. Not like a friend saying, hey, um, is it okay if I drop by later today, say three o'clock? And there's no time to get your house in order because when Jesus returns, it will be suddenly I think we get the idea, which brings us to number three on our list. He will return surely, suddenly, and number three here, separately for the church. Separately for the church. Jesus is coming for his own, not the children of the devil. Separately. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 again. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, this is God's word from the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, here's where Paul begins a detailed affirmative explanation of what will happen when he returns. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, and these are not just any dead, they are dead in Christ, 
those who experience physical death while in spiritual union with him, the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then, and here's the next step, we who are alive and remain, repeated from verse 15, we, here's Paul, he's, he's identifying with this category of believers that it could happen at any moment. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Living saints will join the newly resurrected saints in a grand reunion in the air. You see, all in Christ, all in Christ, all of us together, we will be with the Lord and and he's going to take us back home. It says we will be caught up. It's a great uh, translation of the Greek word here known as harpazo. Harpazo, it, it means to grab or, or to seize suddenly. As we have already covered, this is exactly what will take place. And it's better known to us, thanks to the Latin, as an event we like to call the rapture. And it is at this event that the entire body of Christ, the entire church body, is united. And if you're trying to get the big picture here of the end time events, let me just take a moment, just for a second... And take us a little higher in the plane so we can see more of the landscape here of end times. So we are talking about the next event on God's prophetic calendar. We're talking about the rapture. And following the rapture, for those who are still here, is seven years of tribulation. Where God's wrath is poured out upon the earth. Then you have the second coming of Christ where Zechariah 14.4 tells us that he literally will place his feet on the earth at the Mount of Olives. And he sets up his kingdom and reigns for a thousand years. And after the thousand years, he ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. And we're looking at that very first event, the next event on God's calendar, the rapture. Now, one of the questions I often get is, Is there anything that must take place to bring about the rapture, the return of the Lord? Like, is there something while we're here that we're waiting to see that needs to happen first? And here's my answer. Nothing. Nothing other than the relenting of God's mercy. Other than him saying it is time. It's all him. It's all him. He makes that determination not us. Yet people, many claiming Christ, attempt to try to in some way usher in this event. They attempt to use God's word to say, he's going to return on such and such date, or or he's going to return after this happens. We need to be doing this because that's only when he's going to return. And I have to tell you, I find it offensive, and so should you, as it's an attempt to place these events in the hands of man when they are sovereignly decreed and determined only by the secret will of God. There is no special math that will get you to the year. There isn't. It could be in two minutes or 2,000 years. There's no secret code to decipher. You must accept that he has chosen not to reveal the time and the day. And there's no way to manipulate or make these events occur any sooner. Some will say that uh, the United States needs to be Christianized in order for this to happen. Others add that the world must head in that same direction too. Or, or worse yet, the Mosaic law and all its civil and ceremony rules, not just the moral aspect that Christ affirmed in the New Testament, but that these laws need to be honored 
in some manner. And it is only then, which is in direct contradiction, I believe, to Romans 1, it is only then that some, if not all, of these end-time events, they'll say, can, can begin. In your bulletin, you have uh, three terms that I've listed for you to that end. You'll notice that they have a no symbol. You see that, the circle with the line through it, instead of the standard bullet uh, symbol there. These are not views we shouldn't be uh, in any way embracing in the church age. We, we want to be wary of these. And the first one is Christian nationalism. Oh, he said it. Christian nationalism. And it's even come into play in the politics, right? And I'm going to ask you to be wary of these. Christian nationalism is a term that is frequently used and abused today. And just like many terms, we need to understand how it is being used or defined in order for us to engage with it. So let me start on the easy part here with the word nationalism. In its healthiest sense, it is just a synonym for patriotism. It's, it's a feeling, a, a sense of, of love and respect and responsibility to one's country. It's like the Olympics. That's good. Waving of flags, different countries represented, healthy competition that's taking place. Not like Hitler, that's bad, which turned nationalism into something much darker and negative and frankly evil. Now today... Christian nationalism can be misused, it can be misapplied in a variety of ways, such as a political debate where the idea is that the individual who does not want taxpayer funds going towards something immoral is a Christian nationalist. If that's a Christian nationalist, then I'm one. But that is not the correct definition of a Christian nationalist. Christian nationalist taken too far is to be understood as a form of idolatry. And that's really the definition. It's a form of idolatry where there's far more emphasis that is placed upon one's political beliefs than the gospel. At its worst, like if you were to go as far as you could with Christian nationalism, it is the idea that America is put into a place that is reserved for God and God alone. And you may say like, what, what is he saying here? What, what does this look like? Like, what do I need to be wary of? What, what do I need to be concerned of when this starts out? What does Christian nationalism start to look like? Let me give you some examples. And we've seen this. This would be like presenting the founding fathers of our nation as Christians. That's not grounded in reality. Uh, airbrushing American history to make it seem that it had much higher regard for God in the past. Some ways it's true, some ways it's not. It's revisionist history. We've got to be careful here. Sin may be more bold and brazen today, I got that, but it was rampant then too. There's sinners as well. Making direct connects with America in the Bible. Second Chronicles 7.14, you know, if my people called by my name, they're going to humble themselves, they're going to turn from their wicked ways, and he's going to heal their land with repentance. It's talking about Israel. It has nothing to do with us. I've heard individuals use locusts mentioned in the book of Revelation to talk about us with aircraft in the Middle East. I think one of the worst yet of late is turning some of our leaders, our, our politicians, into devout believers, contrary to the overwhelming evidence of what they have said and what they have done. I could go on and on and start to build this. This is the beginning of it. I know feathers are already ruffled here this morning. Toes may have been stepped on. But what I'm getting at is this. What tribe 
do you have allegiance to? What tribe do you have allegiance to? I love living in the United States of America, and I'm so very thankful for it. But Christ didn't die for it. My citizenship is in heaven, not with a political party. Hey, Tuesday, get out and vote. Be engaged. Be involved. That's not what I'm saying. But God can judge a nation. And in some ways, I believe he's doing it now here in this nation by giving us over. You want this? Romans 1? Oh, I'm going to give you over for more. You may be saying, why is he bringing this up as it relates to return of Jesus? Why is he going down this path? Because this position is the beginning of it. It's grafted into the next, which is the idea that the expansive influence of Christianity is going to usher in Christ's return. It's that kind of investment in it. And that is post-millennialism, if you see on your bulletins there, which could be defined here in part as a view of reconstructing society. A view of reconstructing society, an end times view that focuses on the progressive victory and expansive influence of Christianity. It is the idea that the key to ushering in Christ's return is for the church to gain dominion over the culture and over the government's public policy. Postmillennialism says that Christ's return is predicated upon his church overtaking all aspects of society. There's no rapture for the postmillennialist, and it is the church, he or she would say, that will bring in the kingdom. Again, no. No. This is not what the Bible teaches. It's not even close. Some will even misuse the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19, the, to make disciples of all the nations as some kind of clarion call to make Christian nations, as opposed to discipling Christians from every nation, which leads us to the most extreme of these three views, and that is theonomy. Theonomy. I wish they wouldn't call it theonomy because the word broken down simply means God's law. Theos is God and nomos is is law. I wish they wouldn't call it that, but the definition of theonomy is not simply a regard for the law of God. It is, if I could rename it, I'd say something like uh, mosaic onomy. Mosaic on me because it's the belief that the Mosaic law, not just the moral portion of the law that we said that Christ speaks of in the New Testament, but the civil and even ceremonial aspects of, of the law, Israel's law, Leviticus, are to be applied to the U.S. of A. And what that does is it blurs the lines between Israel and the church. It places free market capitalism and a protection of individual rights under the banner of Christianity. And again, focuses on the redemption of a common kingdom of the world that might then usher in Christ's return. Let me just say it this way. A proper student studying scripture, not eisegesis, but exegesis, not reading into the text, right? Will not lead to these kind of views. It'll be just the opposite. Now, of course, I have barely scratched the surface with that. There is so much more on each of these views that we could unpack for a great length of time. I think there'd be very healthy discussion on it. But my focus is here, how each of them are contributing to a man-centered view that the church influences its own rescue by the Lord. And that's just not the case. It's just the opposite. He will come in spite of what we're doing. And it'll be on his timeline. Of his secret will, it will happen. And he will come for the church. The church is not going to usher that in. God will. So you have Christian nationalism. You have 
post-millennialism, you have theonomy. These are not the steps to his return. Jesus stated plainly that his kingdom is not of this world. It is separate. If it were of this world, they would have gone so far as to take arms in order that the Messiah would not be handed over to the Jews. Instead, we see from God's word that surely he will return. It's a fact and and it's our hope. Suddenly he will return. It's going to catch us completely off guard. And separately, he will come for us, the church. And then number four here, number four, strikingly, strikingly, he will come. Strikingly, this is a supernatural event and it's spectacular in every way. In verse 16, again, we see three things right away. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, that's the first, with a shout. Do you see that in your Bible? It is the shout of Jesus Christ himself. It's a military term, as if troops were at ease and and he called the church all of a sudden to attention. I like this. Luther said it was a call to the church to stand up. That is the very next event on God's prophetic timetable. The very next thing we will hear will be a shout from the Lord. Not a whisper, not a spoken word, but a shout. Much like he did in front of the grave of a friend when he shouted, Lazarus, come out. Or remember he was in the boat during the storm and he shouted, peace, be still. It's the very same voice who on the cross cried out, it is finished. Listen to John 5, 25, where Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. He comes with a shout. And those who hear his voice are his sheep who know that voice And they will truly live. Still in verse 16, another element of how his return will be strikingly different. It says, following a shout from our Lord with the voice of an archangel. With the voice of an archangel. You know, this this is without parallel in scripture, by the way. The The only real mention of an archangel is found here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and also in Jude 9, and in Jude, it's, it's Michael. And perhaps it's Michael here. So Jesus is accompanied by an archangel who will make a bold declaration. This should remind us of John the Baptist, right? In the wilderness, crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. And yet another, a third element follows a shout from the Lord and the voice of an archangel It is with the trumpet of God, the trumpet of God. Could his return be any more dramatic? Any more spectacular of an appearance? Striking indeed to hear the trumpet of God in much the same way like the Israelites heard. In Exodus 19, when they were called out to assemble out of the camp to meet their God, they heard that trumpet. It's a military heavenly blast calling the people of God out of this world to meet their Lord. It's going to be time to break camp, to fold up our tents, to go home, 
from time into eternity. And just when you thought those three elements of his return, his shout, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, that they were enough to arrest every single part of you emotionally, physically, spiritually, we have number five. Number five, return splendidly, splendidly. What we will see, guys, what we will see will be a magnificent manifestation of Christ himself. Two verses I want to call your attention to before we move to the Lord's Supper this morning. And you don't need to turn there. First John 3, 2. One of my favorites. First John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when he appears, appears to be made manifest, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The only way that's going to happen For us to see him just as he is, is to be without sin, to be in a glorified state. We will see him just as he is. We will behold him with eyes, not wonder, uh, who is that? We're not going to wonder. It won't be a problem. Without a doubt, we're going to know. That's the Lord Jesus. Just as he is. Who is he? He's not a meek and and lowly son of a carpenter. No, when we see him, we will see him just as now he is Lord. He is Lord. You ever wonder what that would be like? What I mean, like what Jesus will really look like? Revelation 1 is helpful here. This is the other scripture I wanted to share with you. John is given a vision Of the glorified Christ. And he tells us that he has head and hair white like wool, like snow, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze growing in a furnace, a voice like the sound of many waters, his face shining like the sun. You want to be encouraged? Read those verses, read those passages again this afternoon, later today. I mean, it's no wonder that Paul ends this section of his letter in verse 18, writing, therefore, comfort one another with these words. They were to be encouraged as as we are, that the Lord could return at any time to receive them to himself. But it's more than just that. You know the Bible tool, therefore. Every time you see therefore, what's it there for? So we look what directly precedes that word in verse 17. And it says, we shall always be with the Lord. We shall always be with the Lord. Whether by death or rapture, those who have a personal relationship with him can be comforted by the fact that there's a day that in reality it's never going to end. When we shall always be with the Lord. Are you really trusting him? Are we with eagerness and anticipation looking for the next prophetic, prophetic event to occur? The next thing on God's calendar? It's his calendar. In fact, that is one of the requirements of the Lord's Supper and communion, isn't it? To proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? We're to be looking for that, anticipating that, knowing that he will do so. 
surely, suddenly, separately, strikingly, and splendidly. He is coming again. Amen? Let's pray. And then we'll partake here in the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we are truly encouraged by you. We are thankful for your word this morning. Thank you for placing our sins on your son and making him our sacrifice. Thank you for placing us in him so that by faith we died in him and we rose in him to newness of life. Thank you for giving us your word, your matchless word to, to explain this next event on your calendar. And our Our hearts cry out with the Apostle John, even so, come, Lord Jesus, even so. Wondrous realities that are promised to us, your people who are unworthy. May we live in light of these truths. May we be uh, refreshed by these truths, placing our hope in the God of truth, for this hope can be certain for anyone who will trust in you. And as we approach the Lord's table here. May it be with a a renewed sense of remembrance, remembering not only what you've done for us, but also that promise that you're coming again for what you have done and what you will do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.